Well, good morning, 4th of July week. I've got a few visitors in town, thankful for you. My name is Jesse, if I haven't met you. Um, I get to preach the word here on a regular basis. And we are, uh, as uh, Brad prayed, we are in, for the summer, uh, the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to follow along and and use uh, a real Bible made out of real paper and, and trees... Just raise your hand and one of the ushers will I'll give you one. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take this one as a free gift from us to you. Uh, so please uh, feel free to take it. Um, each week, I take a little bit of time to kind of give you a, a, a snapshot of what's happening at Seer Bible Church, uh, both on, uh, we call it a missions moment and a ministry moment. Uh, those of you know, last week, um, I made mention we, we're doing some remodeling next year for our chil- uh, next year, next door um, for Children's Church. And uh, so mind a little bit of a mess there as we're in process of painting. We're looking to replace the carpet, uh, which is a significant cost to the church, and, and um, we're, we're hoping uh, to get those funds in. So if you want to help get carpet next door, uh, just on your um, offering check, write um, carpet on there. Like I said, it's, it's more significant than what we really would like to spend, but the, it's time. It's been 15 years. The carpet we're getting is supposed to last 20 years, uh, and so... Um, uh, at that point, I'll be able to have a sabbatical, and then we'll replace the carpet again. But um, at, at any rate, we, we are looking for, for some help with that. So if you'd like to help, uh, that, that's one way you can do it. And then um, this week, I was reminded uh, from a pastoral friend of mine uh, about the, um, the average lifespan of a pastor at a church. Average lifespan of a pastor at a church. Does anyone know what the average lifespan of a pastor is? <laughs> Mavis says three, five. 10, 10 uh, 3.8, 3.8. Um, so I, I think on a minute, one of the things we do at Ministry Moment is we try to celebrate things that are worth celebrating, and we kind of have a saying in the office, what we celebrate gets duplicated, and uh, so I just thought it would be really neat just to remind us of how blessed we are uh, within our community, a special community that has a lot of transition in it. Um, Pam Franklin, she's been our secretary at Cerebral Church 30 years. And she's not here, so all your applause are on deaf ears, but um, she, she knew I was going to mention it. Um, she has seen uh, all, several different pastors come and go uh, for good periods of time, and she tells me that I'm her favorite, so there's that. <laughs> 30 years of wisdom, you got you to gotta rest on it. She, yeah. <laughs> Wayne, 27 years. Uh, Brad, uh, Brad, hold your applause till the end graduation, you know. Uh, Brad Franklin, uh, 19 years full-time, 21 years if you include his part-time with Sierra Bible Church. I've been here for 14 years. Brad Knoll is in his 10th year. Uh, John Amon is right at five years, uh, our new children's director. Uh, he's in his first year, but he interned two years prior to, to us bringing him on part-time. All in all, 105-plus uh, years of ministry experience uh, with those who have been on staff. So I think that's worth celebrating. And it's really all because of you. You guys are so easy to lead, and you're such a blessing. No, you really are. Uh, and then um, missions moment. I, and just say, just real quickly, I think that that really is a big deal. Um, they they have done studies on depression for pastors, suicide rates for pastors, and things like that. All of them are very high. Uh, and so um, I just think for the staff as a whole, we should be just grateful that God has has blessed us 
uh, to have some good, solid leadership here that loves the Lord, loves the Word, and is dedicated through thick and thin. So hopefully that's a, a real encouragement and an example to you to continue in the faith. Uh, and then missions uh, moment. We support, um, several of you know, uh, Travis and Amber with So Ministries, serving orphans and widows in Mexico. Uh, and so um, So Ministries basically started out, Travis went down to Mexico with his wife and two kids six years ago. They, their plan was to partner with orphanages and to help them and assist them in taking care of orphans. The Bible teaches that true religion is to take care of the orphan and the widow. That's what true religion is. So he's practicing true ministry, true evangelism. He went down there, and one of the stories that he shares is uh, he, uh, an orphanage needed a new stove to cook meals for kids, and uh, the, the money was given to the orphanage, and those who were in charge of the orphanage never bought the stove, took the money for themselves. Kids never got the stove. He, he said, I can't do ministry like this. I can't keep doing this. He removed himself from that picture. That's when they started so. And so he is basically the, the mediator between all different orphanages in Mexico um, and, and uh, like churches like us who support him. So an orphanage says, we need a new stove. Travis goes, okay. He goes and he buys the stove. And then he sometimes goes across the border to do it, brings it across the border, takes it to the orphanage, takes the old stove away, puts the new stove in. Here's your stove. You get no money. We take care of the kids, right? Uh, while he's been down there for the last six years, he's been super fruitful. Some of you have been down there. Uh, we're planning on trying to do some more trips down there in the future. But um, I had lunch with him yesterday, and this will tie in with where we're going so you understand where he's at. Um, while he's been down there, he's noticed a huge gap, a huge need in Mexico, and that need is to um, orphan uh, for orphans between the ages of zero, birth, and three. Uh, and basically, the way that the laws are written, the, the cost, many of the orphanages just simply say, we, if, you're, if you're between the ages of zero and three, we can't, we can't help, which leaves this huge need and huge gap. So what Travis and Amber have decided is they said, you know what? This is not okay. God's placed it on their heart. They're going to build and plant a new orphanage for children between the ages of zero and three. And so we support them. We've been supporting them in that. They've been in the process for the past year of trying to purchase a piece of property in Mexico. That piece of property was a, a, a parcel of a larger piece. He had a budget of $200,000. They've been in negotiations for that piece of property for the past year. What's happened is those that he's negotiated with um, have basically played hardball with him, and, and here's, in essence, what's happened. Uh, they, the other part of the property that they want to sell they believe that they will not be able to build and get the price they want for higher-end kind of homes in Mexico if an orphanage exists on the same parcel. So what they basically told Travis is, we understand your budget's 200000 but we're only selling the chunk as a whole. You can buy it for 800 thousand. <clears throat> so Travis said, <laughs> no, no. And he tried to work with them, gave him a fair offer. Travis is... Uh, and Amber are starting over. They're looking at some other pieces of property. Um, they're probably going to have to go a little farther east and a little farther south to make it happen for the price point at the, where they're at. Uh, and so I just wanted to update you, continue to pray for Travis and Amber. Um, our our church is, is supports them. We're a huge support for them both emotionally, prayerfully, and financially. And so um, please pray for him, and, and uh, he's doing a great work down there. Amen? All right. Um, Jonah. So if you've been with us, I know some of you are visiting. It's 4th of July weekend. Glad you're here. Uh, we have been going through Jonah for uh, during the summer. We did a couple messages in chapter 1, an introduction, and, and 
kind of dove in a little deeper into chapter 1, and then we dove down into chapter 2, and so one would think that we would dive into chapter 3, and we're not. We're going to go back to chapter 2. So there's more to, um, to plumb here. There's more to discover here. And uh, I will, I will uh, give you this introduction as we dive in, or, or a confession. Uh, I had uh, planned on five different points this morning, uh, and in the first service I only covered uh, 1.5 points, and, um, and I'm undecided because I haven't get, gone into my study week where we'll be next week, um, but uh, the Lord just kind of went where he went this morning, and we'll see what God does with us here at the 1030, because sometimes it does look different. And... Um, Chapter 2, Jonah, if you remember, he's mentioned in the book of Kings. He is a prophet who has been called by God to sit with God and to be in relationship with God. His whole calling is to literally sit in the presence of God, to hear what God has to say, and then to proclaim those words to a people group, the Israelites, who would then repent and return back to God. And Jonah, Jonah is called by God. The word of God goes forth. And Jonah's called to go to Nineveh. Jonah rebels against God's words. He, he runs in the opposite direction, trying to go to what is now modern-day Spain, 2,500 miles in the complete opposite direction to, uh, of Nineveh. He goes down from Nineveh or away from Nineveh, down to Joppa, we're told in the text of chapter 1, uh, down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the sea, down into the whale, and as we saw last week, down to the very... Uh, roots of the mountains, that he went down, down, down. And at this point in time, in chapter 2, he begins to pray. He begins to hear God's voice, lead him uh, closer to himself, and Jonah, in essence, somewhat repents in his conversation with God. So after being cast overboard in chapter 1, we are told in verse 17 that the Lord then told this great fish to swallow Jonah and to take Jonah down into the depths of the ocean for three days and three nights. And so we'll read together from chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We have a tradition here. We honor God's word. If you would please, if you're able to this morning, stand with me for the reading of Jonah chapter 2, this great prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the great fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Lord, I am reminded that many of us gather here week in and week out. Some of us, Lord, have forgotten the miracle of the church. 
the reality of how awesome it is to gather under your holiness and under your great grace the preaching of the word. I pray this morning that it would not be lost on us that what you have designed for us this morning is no small thing. It is a great thing. We are family because of you. Within this room this morning, you will sanctify your saints to be more like you. Within this room, you will draw people closer to yourself. You will call people to repentance. Lord, you may even bring people to salvation today, and for that, we glorify that amazing thing that you call the church. Accomplish your task this morning, Lord, through the preaching of your word, through the glory of what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Devotions at Sea. God brings Jonah to a place in the ocean where he now brings him play himself back into, if you will, back into the presence of God, back into relationship with God. I want to ask you a question this morning. What is your devotion life like? For some of you, you have a devotion life that is solid. Some of you get up every morning, you read, you pray, you, you tackle whatever thing it may be for the Lord. Maybe it's in the evening. Maybe you journal at night. Maybe it's during the day. Maybe it's while you're working out and you're listening to a podcast. Whatever it may or may not be, it may exist or it may not exist. Maybe this is the first time you've ever even heard the word devotion. What does it look like to actually spend time with God? Some of you have probably tackled uh, reading the Bible an entire year. Anyone ever tried to do that? How many of you have accomplished that feat, reading the Bible an entire year? It's almost the same amount of hands. It was the same in the first service, so I applaud you for that. I thought it would be better than it would be. Anybody not accomplish it? You're like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, and, and uh, you forgot to read on, like, day four? Um, we, we set these attempts to get into a devotion life. We know that reading God's Word is important. We know that coming to church is important. We know that praying is important, and, and yet we find it incredibly difficult. My wife, who uh, she's actually felt this, uh, this vow, if you will. We, we, we've been focusing a little bit. We did last week, at least where Jonah says in verse 9, what I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah is vowing to get back into his relationship with God. He's making a promise that he'll keep. It's the same language that's used in chapter 1, that the sailors come to a place in, in relationship with God where they too uh, make sacrifices and make a vow to worship God. And my wife has made this vow to not read the Bible an entire year, but how many books are in the Bible? How many of you know? 66. So the challenge she has set before herself, before her and the Lord, is to read the Bible in 66 days, one book a day. Uh, each morning over the last week or so, I've come downstairs, uh, and sitting outside is my wife huddled in a, a blanket or a robe sitting on our deck, tackling her reading, tackling her time, her devotion with the Lord. This kind of endeavor that she has taken is not something that she can only do in the morning. She's also been doing it at night, which is kind of cut into our, our time that, where I like to consider we spend time together, which would be to watch some kind of Netflix show. <laughs> so I've continued my practice because I'm the worldly one in the relationship. And she will at times, knowing, that, knowing as a guy, I feel close to my wife if she's in the same room. Any other men like that? Women are white, you know, women typically, I want to feel close to you. Well, we're in the same room. What's the problem? I, I feel very connected right now. Um, and uh, 
And so she, knowing that, she sits in the room sometimes and the distraction of the TV and what have you. And while I'm trying to pay attention to what I'm doing, she, she will interrupt me every five minutes or so, just reminded of the gloriousness of Deuteronomy or Joshua. And she's sharing with me these amazing things that God has done within Scripture. You can see within her she is becoming enlightened to this reality, it, uh, reawakened, if you will, to the reality of who God is because of her time with God, even a distracted time her husband isn't necessarily devoted in the same way in that moment. The reason I mention this is because this relationship with God, it needs to be rekindled. The reason we're back in chapter 2, it's by purpose. It isn't just because I said, hey, we, we uh, want to spread Jonah out even longer throughout the summer. It's, it's been, no, it's been, I felt like there's just too much in chapter 2. There's too much beauty here. And, and if we're recognizing that we're studying this book because there are people even in the church who are running from God, one of the best things that we need to be reminded of is when we run back to God, it will always be connected back to a devotion and a prayer life with God. Or if you feel far and distant from God and you're desiring to be back in right relationship with God, prayer will be a way that accesses that relationship with God. We speak of prayer, we talk about prayer, and this is, to a degree, just another sermon on prayer. And yet, it is one of the realities that God uses to bring us to himself. One commentator says, you enter into a spiritual atmosphere wherein God's presence and grace exert pressure or influence on your life. Let me read that again. He's speaking about prayer and the reality of what happens in prayer. You enter into a spiritual atmosphere, not a fleshly one, not a tangible one that you can touch, but a spiritual atmosphere in where God's presence, the very presence you know that Jonah's been running from, Jonah does not want this grace to be exerted upon himself to become the evangelist that Nineveh requires. Rather, this presence, if we place ourselves in prayer, he goes on to say, and grace, exert pressure and influence on your life. It's going to change you and your perception of reality. He goes on and said, God's purpose in prayer. God's purpose in prayer is not for us to inform or persuade him to respond to our needs. Do I need to read that one again? God's purpose in prayer is not for us to inform or persuade him to respond to our needs. However, he goes on. Needs but to an open and sincere continual lines of communication with him. Prayer more than anything else is sharing the needs, burdens, hungers of our hearts with God. Who cares? He wants to hear us and commune with us more than we could ever want to commune with him because his love for us is so much greater than our love for him. You know, prayer is incredibly difficult. We've preached on this before. We've talked about it before. That, that prayer is incredibly difficult because when you pray, you stand before an almighty God, a powerful God, a magnificent God, a God that you can't even fathom in all reality, especially without the life of Jesus Christ. He's infinite. You're finite. He's holy. You're, you're not. And God looks into your heart and you are laid bare. You are laid nude before the glory of God. You feel vulnerable. You feel weak, and your pride is brought low, and your attitude is brought low, and because you're looking into the heart of God. God looks into you. You look into God. You feel insignificant. He feels almighty, and that is the place in where God can finally work. I want you to notice something. This great prayer of Jonah, it's called the Psalm of Jonah. Jonah is reaching into the Psalms and revealing some of these Psalms in his prayer. 
You can tell that Jonah was a student of Scripture at the time. He knew the things that David prayed. He's using the language that David prayed, and he's calling out to God. And, and, but notice something. We've, we, we've gone past Jonah chapter 1, where Jonah has rebelled. Jonah has rebelled. God has ran after Jonah. He has brought Jonah down into the belly of this fish. Before that, the, the great rocking of this boat that is about to fall apart. He is in great distress. And then it says, after this great distress, then Jonah prayed. Isn't that true of your faith and mine? Distress, then we pray. It shouldn't always be this way. And Jonah says in verse 1, Then I called out in my distress. I shared a, I was thinking about Travis and So Ministries in Mexico. Both of us went to the same ministry, school of ministry. And while we were at the same school of ministry, at the end of the school, uh, they do a practicum trip for the students. And on the practicum trip, it's uh, student-led, student-planned, and uh, certain. we had four groups of students, uh, about somewhere between 15 and 20 students in each group, and they, we, we, uh, they sent us in different locations in Mexico. And Travis was chosen to be one of the leaders. I was chosen to be one of the leaders to go down to Mexico for 30 days and, and lead that group. And um, Travis went to the mountains in Mexico, and I went to, to a place called Los Mochis, two hours outside of Mexico City. And when I graduated high school, my dad... Uh, sitting in front of our, our house, uh, we had uh, the same car I learned to drive in. It was a 69 Fastback Mustang. And it was on the frame at that time. It was all primered out. The engine was taken out. My dad said, when you graduate high school, this car will be yours. Well, he never finished it. And so my grandfather, who's not a Christian, he's an old Texas boy, he said, well, I better buy you a car. So for graduation, he bought me the, the best car. At that time, man, I thought I was flying high. It was a four-door green Geo Metro. Mm. <laughs> Nothing sweeter than a Geo. <laughs> and nonetheless, to me, it was very valuable. And, and uh, when I went down to San Diego, I felt God say, when, before, you know, to go then to Mexico, I felt God say, hey, you need to, you need to volunteer your car to take the 30-hour-plus drive and use your car as a vehicle to help students get down to Mexico. My grandfather, again, he's an old Texas boy. I had this conversation with him that I was going to do it, and this is, these were his words, Jesse, don't ever leave the United States of America. <laughs> I said, well, I feel like God's telling me to do this, and he didn't understand that, and he kept telling me, don't leave the U.S., don't leave the U.S., and I did. Here I am, 30-plus hours outside of the American border one morning. I'm driving from location A where I was staying to the church that we were assisting. And as I was driving, I ran a big red auto sign. I don't know if you know what an auto sign is, but it means stop. And I didn't recognize it until I was partway through that sign, and I noticed that there was a 30-passenger van not stopping, moving towards the collision. Sure enough, I hit that van. I hit that bus. Boom, bang, flew over, airbag goes off. I'm over off onto the, doing a 180 into the, almost hitting a house, and, and I'm holding the wheel, just white-knuckling it, wondering what had just happened. My car is completely totaled. I'm thinking of my grandfather in this moment. Everything's coming back. Don't leave the United States of America. Passengers are getting off the van. Who shows up? The Federales. Federale comes up to me. He's got an AK-47 hanging around his chest. He looks at me in broken English. He says, you, prison. My heart sank. 
And then he goes, ha ha, just kidding. <laughs> I hate that man to this day. <laughs> In that moment, God produced a kind of prayer, a kind of devotion. Am I right? It's not a prayer that is highly articulated. It's definitely not a prayer that would be quoted at some presidential kind of thing. It's, it's just, a, just a, dear God, dear Lord, help me. I need you. I am in a, a very uh, interesting predicament, Jesus. Would you assist your child? Let me remind you of all the things that I am to you. I want to make it back to the United States of America. The reason I mention this is because God loves Jonah enough to hurt Jonah to save Jonah. God loves Jonah enough to put a, a, a place of, of pressure on his life, to exert an influence upon his life, to bring Jonah back into right relationship with himself. Jonah has been called to be in the presence of God. He's running from the presence of God. God will have none of it. Jonah has violently rebelled against God, and God therefore brings a violent act upon Jonah to bring Jonah back into God's presence. Does not God do that for us? He cares about you greatly. The Bible teaches that he's a jealous God. We can trust when it comes to salvation that God will bring his children to himself. There's a reality of prayer here. Something that we have to understand that if we're going to get back into right relationship with God is that God is going to, this is number one, God is going to hear you and answer you in spite of your guilt. In spite of your sin, in spite of your disobedience, in spite of what is happening in your life, God will still hear you. One of the great truths of this is that no one, no one in their desperation who cries out to God is ever rejected by God. Most of the time, we don't come to that place, but God will bring distress upon one's life. He'll either bring it upon your life, even if you have not been disobedient, but you just happen to be forgetting him, because we forget God when things are going well, don't we? Man, when life is good and money's coming in and, and the sun is out and, and we're not shoveling the snow and we're just enjoying the beauty that is Tahoe, we forget that God is God. We forget about him. God will at moments bring us back to himself through some kind of travail or other times we rebel against God like Jonah did. We, we follow this downward spiral that we see in Jonah's life in chapter one, right? Do you remember that downward spiral? It's worth repeating. Jonah hears the word, he rebels against the word. He falls asleep, he's at peace with his rebellion. He's okay, he can sleep. Then he comes to the place of the sailors. The sailors ask, who are you? And he declares, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of the sea, I worship the God of the land, I worship the God of the air, and I'm running from the presence of the Lord. It tells us in chapter 1 because he had told them just that. Verse 10, chapter 1. He's at a place now where he says, I, I worship God and I sin. I'm okay with it. And then he comes to a place where, where now he, he's, his back is against the wall in chapter 1. He has a, an opportunity to finally repent, to confess his sin, to tell the sailors, hey, you want your boat to be saved? Return back to Joppa so I can go to Nineveh. No, he says, forget it. I would rather die. That is the path of sin. You come to a place where you take a taste of sin. You, you, you're okay with sin. You, you can maybe even sleep with it, and then you come to a place where you're having even a conversation with another Christian. I'm a sinner, and this is what I do, and I'm totally okay with it. The Bible tells us in regards to sin that sin can dominate the mind, Romans 1.21, that when we allow sin to take over, it can dominate the will. We're also told that it can dominate our emotions and our affections. 
We're told that if we allow sin to totally dominate, that we become under the control of Satan himself, he becomes our master, that we're under that prince of the power of the air. Sin is also said to us that if we continue in it, that it will bring some kind of divine wrath, which is what, what Jonah is experiencing at this point. And sin subjects men to misery. All of this to be said, we can have trouble be brought upon us because of our sin. It, it, we have to be clear on this because sometimes bad things happen to good people because God's allowing it for his glory and their good. We don't fully understand it. And sometimes bad things happen to good people because you're not as good as you think you are. Maybe. Right at that question that we answer, why, 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 why do bad things happen to good people? And then I'm, whenever someone says that, I just hear Jesus say, why do you call me good? There's no one good but me, but God alone. We have to redefine the condition of man. You are depraved. There is not one good but Jesus Christ. In that humility, we finally come to a place where Jonah is at now, where he is calling out to God. And even in the midst, even in the midst of his rebellion, God hears. In the midst of his heart, God hears him. Let's skip a couple slides here, but MacArthur gives this description of the trouble that Jonah is enduring. In his commentary, he says, I don't know what efforts in one sense God had to go to create this kind of fish, big enough so that a man could float around in its stomach. We don't know any details about it, except we do know that there's a word in Hebrew for whale, and that's not the word that's used here. So this is not some kind of warm-blooded mammal. This is some kind of fish, cold, wet, unimaginable, indescribable, a three-day stay inside a fish, cramped in clammy darkness, suffocating stench, gastric acids of the fish eating away at his skin, constant motion of the fish, changing pressure of the ocean depths, absolutely nauseating. It's a miraculous thing that he is in the fish, that the fish was prepared for him. It's a miraculous thing that he survives in the fish. Don't ask me about the breathing part. I don't know about that, but I know he's humbled. I added guilt-ridden. Why do I mention that? Why is this an important quote? Because God is doing in Jonah's life exactly what Jonah needed to be in the presence of God. He needed humility. Jonah needed to be humbled. Jonah needed to come to a place where he recognized that he couldn't live life alone. Is it not true as a church that you and I have to come to a place of recognition? We cannot be saved on our own. We cannot be kept saved on our own. As Spurgeon says, if you could lose your salvation, you surely would. God is the one who saves you. God is the one who keeps you and holds you. God is the one who ensures that your path is taken in such a way that you will find him no matter what road you take. Have you not found that to be true, my brothers and sisters? Those of you who are true children of God, you feel like you can go one way, but God's there at the end of that path. You feel like you can go another way, but he happens to be there. Jonah's in the same place. Maybe God's not in Joppa. No, God's in Joppa. Maybe he, he's not at the sea. No, he's in the sea. Maybe he's not in the sea. Oh, wait a minute. He's in the sea. You can't run from God. You can't get into a place where God does not know what's happening in your life. Whether you know it or not, you are completely naked in front of the Lord. Oh, how we need as a church a, a greater reality, a greater understanding of our failure before God and that God will use this failure to draw us into himself. What we're seeing, actually, this, is, this prayer is a great teaching moment to teach us what it's like to pray in failure. 
Jonah's reaching back into Scripture, reaching back into Psalms. One commentator writes, when our distress has been caused, I think I have a quote here, when our distress has been caused by our own disobedience, often that is when it is when, that is when it is most difficult to pray. Because our self-condemnation makes us think that either we have no right to call on God, or if we did, he would not listen. If an errant rascal like Jonah could pray while well, he was in affliction that he brought on himself, so can we. God meets us even in our self-imposed trouble. Isn't that beautiful? It reminds me of another man who finds himself in quite the predicament. Are you aware of this man who writes in Psalm 51? Do you know who I'm talking about? King David. A man that the Bible actually says in regards to David that he's a man after God's own heart. King David finds himself placed upon the platform of his palace, looking down upon the kingdom in which God has called him to lead, and he finds for himself, maybe by accident, maybe on purpose, a beautiful woman showering. He sees this beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba. He sends his men to grab Bathsheba. He takes Bathsheba into his home. He sleeps with Bathsheba. He impregnates her. Only come to find out Bathsheba is a married woman. David does not want his sin to be found out, so he finds out who Bathsheba's husband is. His name happens to be Uriah. Uriah is on the battlefield. He's fighting for God. So he calls Uriah off of the battlefield. King David, in his scheming to get out of the thumb of God, to get out of his sin, he says, okay, listen, this is what you need to do. You need, I need to bring you back, and you need to go sleep with Bathsheba, your wife. Go sleep with her. So, so in essence, he won't be found out. But Uriah, man, he is a man after God's heart. He is a guy who loves God and loves his people, and he refuses to go sleep with his wife. He says, how, how can I go and do this when all my brothers, all my men are fighting on the field for God? And so instead of sleeping in the same house with Bathsheba, he sleeps outside the door. So David, again, in his scheming, he doesn't repent, he doesn't confess. What does David do? He says, okay, Uriah, now, now that you're back, thanks for coming. I'm sending you back on the battlefield. You need to go to the front lines. So David, in essence, commits murder against Uriah, and Uriah dies on the battlefield. Sure enough, David's sin is found out. Like all of our sin, there's no hiding it. And in Psalm 51, it actually starts out this way in Psalm 51, verse 1. It starts out, this is the psalm that David had written after he entered in to Bathsheba. He comes to a place of confession as his sin has been found out. Listen to the language. Listen to what he prays in the midst of his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on in verse 5 of the same passage. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and, my, and in sin my mother conceived me. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Do you hear the language in chapter 51, verse 8? Jonah's crying out. He says, out of my distress, he answered me. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Jonah accredits the entire process of breaking in his own life to God himself. And David does the same. You have broken my bones. Now allow that breaking to be a place of rejoicing and joy. 
Verse 8, let me hear joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. This is David's prayer in the midst of his sin, in the midst of being found out. Don't let me be removed from your presence, the very presence that Jonah ran from, the very presence that Jonah's being ripped back to. David prays the same. Don't let me lose this. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Are you hearing the same language of sin and disobedience in David and the same language of reconciliation to God? And what's amazing about this is then what David prays and what he writes in Psalm 51, verse 13. Then, after all of this is said and done, after you have healed me, after you have washed me clean, after you have seen my rebellion and you've restored me back to a place of ministry, he then says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. I don't know if it's lost on you, but what what the Bible is teaching is a pattern that is true for every Christian, that you cannot run from God, because if you do, he will chase you down, and he will find you, and he will bring you back to himself. He will bring, bring distress upon your life, not because he does not love you, not because he does not care about you. No, on the contrary, it's because he loves you so much, he will do anything he has to do to bring you back into his presence. And once you've been brought back into that presence, your intimacy is restored. Your sin has been passed over because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And then he will take your life and he will restore you to a place of ministry where you will teach transgressors the way of God and that sinners will come to repentance and know him. My friends, you and I are completely bound to being missional people. What this means is not one of you, if you call yourself a Christian, you are not free to not preach the gospel. You've been called to preach the gospel. You will have to preach the gospel. And God will put travail and a whale in your life to, to show you that you need to preach the gospel. In the midst of his guilt, in the midst of sin, there's no running from God. There's running to God. The moment you sin, my friends, that is the moment you run to Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I've been guilty of it in my own life, where I've done something I should not have done. I've committed some kind of sin that I shouldn't, and and I, I will wallow in my guilt for a period of time. Have you found yourself to do that? A, a, a false parenting uh, thing, maybe? You didn't do a good job parenting. You didn't do a good job husbanding. You didn't do a good job uh, wifening. Whatever, you know, those aren't words. We're just creating new Hebrew language this morning. Have you found yourself in that place where you just haven't done life well and and instead you just beat yourself up and you mope and you pout and you cry? Stop, run back to God. Right away. Find yourself in sin, repent. We're going to talk more about repentance in the coming weeks because it's the message that God uses to bring people back to himself. It's a beautiful thing how God has the ability to teach some of these truths through our children, is it not? Yesterday, I uh, had this great idea to take our kids on a hike up the 06 Trail. We live right there at the base of it, not too far away. It's really easy to get to. And so I took out the family. We had one of our neighbor kids with us. And so we had two little girls and little baby David and our two oldest boys and Allie. And the girls made it 100 yards, and then they had to turn around. <laughs> but the boys trekked on and as we were going up the the mountain we're we're climbing up there and 
and we're walking up the hill, and, and I found it a great time to just have a good communication with my kids. I started asking them, you know, questions that they're not thinking about at all right now, like, what are you going to do when you grow up, you know? And, which is always answered with, like, I'm going to be an Avenger kind of thing. And Jonah had this thing, you know, as we're walking the trail, and Jonah says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make money, and I'm going to build a house by this trail so I can hike it every day. And, oh, it's awesome. And, you know, Jonah's the adventurer. He's the go-for-it kind of guy, and Peyton's the introspect, and he goes, where are you going to get money? We keep tracking along, the conversation continues to get deeper, and Jonah decides, because this is how Jonah is, is our son, his name's Jonah, and he decides to answer Peyton with his confidence that he's always possessed from day one, and he says, well, I'm going to preach the Bible and make money. (laughs) I thought to myself, you are wrong, that's not how it works, we need to talk about business, buddy, like. Kids have a way of teaching us this reality of, of intimacy and relationship. And I share that story to segue into a parenting moment. In all honesty, that, that was very emotional for me. A moment of showing how God desires to bring us back into right relationship with himself through imperfection. My wife wasn't home the other night, which starts the story, right? Mom wasn't there. So chaos ensued. I had been describing to my children for Lord knows how long. It might have been five minutes, but it felt like six hours. Telling them to go to bed. Bedtime is just a hard time. Kids are trying to wind down. They're tired. They don't understand how their emotions are working. They don't realize that they need sleep. There's all this confusion going on. They can't understand why Dad has continually repeated himself to get to bed. And after repeating myself for several moments, I, I found my aggressive dad voice. Get in bed a little more angrier than maybe I should have, a little bit more edgier than I should have. And this was the second night in which this had occurred. One was with mom home, so it isn't always perfect without mom. And whenever I get angry with my kids, I try to reconcile as soon as possible. Try to help them understand that I love them no matter what. Jonah, who is really, as many of you know, he's our most excited kid. He's the hardest at times to deal with, but he's the most loving. And no matter what, Jonah's always down for a hug. Peyton, on the other hand, is a little bit different. This is the second night this has occurred. Second night I've asked to hug him and let him know that I love him, and he refused. Two nights in a row. Broke my heart. So I said to him, I said, hey, buddy, I don't know if this was right or wrong, but this is how it went down. I tried to share with him how he should be thankful that God has placed him in a good home, that he's placed Christian parents in his life, all things that are lost on him because this is the only reality that he's ever known. I told him, I said, again, for right or wrong, I said, you know, buddy, I want you to know that I want to hug you and love you no matter what. And none of us, buddy, are guaranteed to have tomorrow. I said, you know, you know, you know, bud, like my dad died in an accident. Some of you know I didn't say that to him. I said, my dad passed away and Daddy didn't get a chance to tell his daddy goodbye, and I didn't get a chance to hug him. Just trying to share with him the impact that you, you can't refuse love towards family because of some kind of emotion. You've got to give it no matter what, trying to teach this particular lesson. And, and I shared with him the reality that it had broken my heart that I couldn't say goodbye to my dad, and I didn't want him to ever experience that because God doesn't guarantee us tomorrow, but he does guarantee us eternity. 
And he didn't really say much. He kind of mumbled. I could tell he wasn't going to hug me, so I went downstairs. And then Peyton comes down, and he's in tears. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I wish I could talk with Grandpa. And I'm sorry, Dad, that you didn't get to say goodbye to your dad, and I don't ever want to miss that with you. And he's just bawling. I'm starting to get emotional because he's asking about Grandpa, wanting to know about Grandpa, and then he says to me, he says, Dad, he says, Dad, you've got to be nicer to us because we're learning. <laughs> He says, when you, when you yell, it scares me. And I said to him, I wouldn't yell if you listened to me the first four times. <laughs> I mean, we're having a real moment. I'm trying to figure out as a parent how, how to parent, how to communicate, how to give grace, how to bring Jesus into the picture. And I said to him, buddy, I understand that you're still learning. And let me, let me be honest with you, guy. I said, hey, daddy and mommy, mommy didn't grow, in a, grow up in a home with Jesus in it, and I didn't grow up in a home with Jesus in it until later on in life. And mom and dad don't know what we're doing. You didn't, I, said, I literally looked and said, you didn't come with an instruction manual. <laughs> I said, buddy, you need to give us grace too because I'm still learning. And he's hugging on me right around that moment. Here comes Jonah. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows dad's crying and brother's crying, and so he's crying. It's just a group of young dudes, just tears everywhere. And I thought, man, this is, it's just too much. How, you know, how do I bring this around? And um, I shared with him, this is, buddy, this is why mom and dad need Jesus. I don't want to yell. And I want you to listen. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Grandpa. You know he's in heaven. We can see him again one day. You know what's amazing about that imperfect moment is I truly believe that moment up into the seven years of Peyton's life will pay more evangelical dividends than any other perfect moment I've had with him as a dad. That moment of confession, that moment of of crying, that moment of great tears and emotion will pay more dividends at the end of the day in regards to who Jesus is and how good Jesus is than any perfect moment I've had as a parent. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand what Jonah is teaching us in this prayer? It is not about you being perfect. It's about you being in the presence of God. And it's about God doing anything and everything he can to bring you back into that presence. I shared in the first service, and I'll share it here. This is important for our church, but it's important for our leadership. There's absolutely nothing more important at Sierra Bible Church than for our people to be in a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It is something that I, I vow, as Jonah has vowed, to be uncompromising in. I refuse to place anything above, at our church, above an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I vow not to, pro to, to judge you for what you may be wearing or what you're not wearing or how you respond to certain things and how you don't respond. 
Whether you were tithing or whether you are not tithing, whether you were serving or you're not serving, I will not judge you on those things. I will constantly call you to the, the job that God has called all of us to do for one another. Be in right relationship with Jesus and know that you can call out to Jesus in your imperfection. And my friends, God loves to use your imperfection to glorify himself. If you don't believe me, what does scripture say? He chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. People say, how are you qualified to be a pastor? I'm not. That's why. I'm not qualified. I simply am not qualified. I'm called. No one's qualified. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's holy. Nobody's good enough. Absolutely nobody. And if that somehow discourages you, you don't understand the great gospel. You don't understand how Jesus takes that imperfect person, shows you his greatness, brings you into his family, weaves you into the great family tree of salvation and holiness, and says, you are now hidden within the life of Christ. I no longer see you as the sinner. I see you as a saint. Your identity is not based on what you do and what you don't do. Your identity is based on the good works of Jesus Christ. Let's drive deeper into the heart of God. Not to the exterior, not into what looks good and what feels good, not into lights and music that flash and smokes and lasers and, and all of those different things. Just people who, who, whether they look good or whether they're ugly, whether they're tall or whether they're short, people that are committed to being in love with Jesus Christ. Our leaders should be teaching you that. Our Sunday school should be teaching you that. Sunday night group should be teaching you that. Our community group should be teaching you that. You should be teaching your kids that because without it, you are hopeless. You will never be good enough, ever. Oh, yeah. That just sounds so good, Jess. Thanks. <laughs> but the other side of that is he is good enough, and we hinge ourselves upon the one who lived a perfect life and who died for our sins. And then he rose from the grave. How did Jonah live in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights? The same way that Jesus rose from the dead, because God declared it so. Amen? This morning as the worship team comes up, um, and some of my uh, 